Jesus, we come to this first really, really big block of your teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. And um, we pray that we will take the time to really consider carefully the words that are preserved for us. Um, as under inspiration, Matthew um, composes and, and, and molded into this, this Greek translation uh, your words. Lord, may we, may we hear your voice. May your spirit be at work in us. May we understand um, as well as feel and know. Um, may we question and explore the, the difficult aspects of what it is, excuse me, that you have taught. And may we, above all, bring glory to the Father through you. Uh, may your spirit guide our hearts, open our ears, um, move us to uh, walk and to do and to, to serve and to love and speak as you would have us to. We pray this, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. So let's, let's, start, by, um, real, let's start by just taking a look at Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to read um, the first uh, the first 12 verses of Matthew 5. Now, this is what we're going to do, though. Um, now, you might be reading from a different translation than, than I am. Um, I encourage you, if that's the case, grab one of the pew Bibles, pull it out, and turn it to Matthew chapter 5. Because um, what we're going to do is we're going to do this as a call and response. Um, so, And this is very much probably the way that this was taught um, in the early church, which is that um, as we're reading the words of Jesus, Jesus will say, blessed are, and he'll da-da-da, and then there's going to be a for theirs. So I want you guys to read the for theirs part of it, okay? So as we go through, when we get there, so we're in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 5 and verse 1, seeing the crowd, Jesus went up on the mountain, he sat down, his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And let's read verses 11 and 12 together. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are a lot of theories about what Jesus is trying to say. Um, in fact, there are as many theories as there are interpreters of, of this, uh, this sermon, this discourse, this uh, discussion that Jesus presents. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to forward an, a couple of ideas to you right as we begin before we get into the text, which is, which is this. Uh, number one, uh, Jesus is not presenting us kind of a moral teaching. Uh, an ideal Christian, that if you just do these things, you will have a great 
great and wonderful life, which is how some people teach these passages. Now, that, has, that flows out of the way that we translate the word that appears as blessed. What does blessed mean? Favored? Receiving gifts? Um, if you're in the South and you're annoying, a lady might say to you, bless your heart. All right, which is actually a way of saying, you're kind of dumb, um, but in a nice way. Um, Ariel, by the way, her, 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 her roommate is from Virginia, um, and they have started to talk about how there's, there, there's two people in the world, two kinds of Americans. There are Southern Bells and uh, Northern Gumption. And she said, well, Southern, you know, this, in the South, in the South, they say, they say something like, oh, I'm, uh, you know, I, I wish that, uh, I wish that you could come. And in the North, they go, great, you're not coming. All right. It's kind of a, uh, kind of a, a different, same meaning, just, just different way of presenting. Anyway, we read blessed and we think favored. We think, um, oh, this is something I get. All right. Um, now, there are a lot of opinions about what this is. The Greek word makarios is a translation, all right? So Jesus is not speaking in Greek. Um, he's speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic or Aramaized uh, Hebrew. Um, and Matthew is translating this into uh, Greek. Now, uh, I had a conversation with Eric Wittenberg a few weeks ago about this, that, that um, it seems when Jesus starts to speak in the Gospel of Matthew, the style, the, the style of the Greek, and you're going to have to take my word for this, um, the style of the Greek becomes elevated. So when he's telling the narrative, Matthew tells the narrative, it's pretty straightforward, but when Jesus starts talking, it is almost as if a group of people got together and said, how do we convey with as much power and literacy and and, and strength, what Jesus said for the church. How do, we, how, do we, how do we make sure people understand this isn't just a story about Jesus. This is Jesus' words. And so they, they use, or Matthew uses this word, makarios, or blessed, all right, um, to translate a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is ashkeh, um, and it actually appears most often in the book of Psalms. Um, uh, if you've ever read Psalm 1, Psalm 1 starts with, blessed is the man, right? That's how we read it. Um, Jonathan Pennington, who is a, uh, a New Testament scholar, um, wrote a book about, about the Sermon on the Mount. And I actually really, at first, I didn't like the way that he translated this word. But the more that I've thought about it, the more I like it. Um, he, always, he translates the word makarios, what we translate as blessed. He translates it as um, flourishing. Now that sounds a little weird to us. We don't usually talk about things flourishing, right? That's not a, a word that's in our common language. But his point is, this is not a reception of something that God gives us. That's not the intent at all. But rather, it is an activity, it is a life, it is a living out of something that we are meant to conduct ourselves. Now that ties into the second thing I want to bring up. In, as we read this, which is that I want you to remember that this series is about the king in exile, the kingdom that both is and is not yet. 
All right? It is both being realized in Jesus, and yet there is a, um, an eschatological component, a future component. That's what eschatological means. It's just a big word for future. Um, it's, there's a future component to this kingdom, and they are superimposed on one another. So Jesus is very much talking about us as citizens of the kingdom, which still exists within the kingdoms of the world. It is not itself discreet. It is still in exile. It is still scattered. It is not yet fully realized. And so as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we need to read it with the, with the idea in our mind that this is Jesus describing us as members of a kingdom that is but is not yet. It is, it is progressing, it is becoming, it is, the Apostle John actually describes it with the Greek word apokalypsis, which means to spring forth, that which is hidden to be revealed, um, what we get the word, we translate it as revelation, but um, that's what's going on, it is this unveiling. Um, if, you, if you were here for when I taught through the book of Revelation, I talk about how the book of Revelation is about the new Jerusalem emerging from the ashes of fallen Babylon. It is this kingdom that is, um, that is being and yet is not, but will be. All right? So the kind of this uh, temporal anomaly. Um, to quote Doctor Who, it's a timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly thing. But Jesus, so what Jesus is teaching to us is, is the idea of living in the kingdom even though we do not yet fully realize the kingdom. The kingdom has not yet fully come. Um, it is coming. The king is coming. And with the king present, we, we have some of the kingdom, uh, shards or fragments of the kingdom that we have not yet, we don't have the ability to put together. And so he is describing a situation where that kingdom exists within all the other kingdoms and powers of the world, and it is in conflict with the other kingdoms and powers of the world, and therefore we will be challenged, we will be oppressed, we will be persecuted, and it is under that persecution... It is the description of those who are going through that persecution that Jesus appeals to when he starts listing these blesseds. Because you know what? It is easy to be a Christian when there's no pressure, when there's no demands on us. When, when Christianity, and I use that in the broadest possible way, was the guiding worldview of Western culture, it was incredibly easy to be a Christian. You could be a Christian with 875 qualifying adjectives. My dad's best friend's church, uh, First Baptist Church of Easton, when I was growing up, on their sign listed their doctrinal position on like 18 things. Pre-millennial, pre-kingdom, dispensational, King James only, women don't wear pants, kind of like all this list of stuff that was, it was all on the sign. It was crazy. It didn't have the women don't wear pants on, that's an exaggeration, but the other stuff was on the sign, and you got to, you know, people go around, what do they do? They shop for a church that fits with their their thinking, this is kind of what you do in a situation where you have tremendous religious affluence and freedom. But what about 
when we are persecuted, when we are oppressed, when we are no longer a a marginal part, but nonetheless a part of the majority voice, but rather we become the minority voice. And let me just let you know about this. We live in a a post-Christian era. Christianity no longer has authority simply because it is Christianity. We have to earn our place at the table And all too often, we do a terrible job of it. And we are getting to a place where we may very well be the persecuted and oppressed minority. And we can either lament that and say, oh, the good old days when we were in charge and everybody did what we said. Or we can recognize that this is actually how the church has existed for most of its existence. The true church has been the persecuted minority, even in, quote unquote, Christian worlds. So Jesus talks about flourishing under pressure. He talks about the reality of who we are when we are weighed down. Because that's the real test of whether the kingdom will endure. It's the real place where the cracks appear. So in the open, on the mountain, on the hill, Jesus is opening the door and saying right up front, this is what's coming. I really wish that as Christians, on a regular basis, we would be up front about what it means to be a follower of Christ. So much of Christianity tries to sell people Jesus. They package him in an easily managed, easily handled, pray a prayer, do a thing, and you get to be a Christian. And then once you're in the church, then they go, okay, here's all the rules and regulations that are required from you. I would much rather start with, hey, being a Christian is a tough choice. It's, I believe it's the right choice, but it's going to require something of you. It's going to require a lot of you. In fact, it's going to require all of you. So Jesus opens up with these statements. I'm not going to get into detail on all of them. I just want to kind of move through them. Um, and I want you to, I want to give you a little bit of an insight um, on this, if you if you want to go deeper, I'm trying to make sure that add for things that people want to go deeper. Um, Jesus seems to be doing a interpretation of Isaiah 61. Um, many of the terms that he uses in this this opening of the sermon actually come from Isaiah 61. Uh, I'm not going to get into it, but if you take a look at Isaiah 61, you will see a lot of similarities. Um, Jesus actually quotes Isaiah 61 at one point. Um, elsewhere. Um, And so Jesus is kind of um, dealing with this. So as we look at these, um, I want to throw out one more disclaimer I meant to throw out at the beginning. There are a million ways that these lines are connected to each other. It's a very, very, very well written um, rhetorical style where this connects to this, connects to this, this also connects to that, that connects to this, this connects to that, that connects to that, over there, and they draw this line, and it looks like a conspiracy um, theorist's living room. Uh, so the way that I'm going to go through these is not necessarily the only way you can go through them, but I'm going to give you uh, one set of relationships that exist. There are multiple relationships that exist. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce these. We're going to read this list as if. Um, basically, there are pairs uh, of, of statements that fit together at the beginning and the end. 
all right? What's called a, a chiasm or a chiasm. Um, it's shaped like the letter X that the Greek letter chi is translated like, a, looks like an X. It's this idea of there's intersecting, um, uh, moving toward each other passages. So the first line, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Jesus actually gives us the flip side of these passages. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, if we look at the end, we see that second part repeated in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Being poor in spirit is not a poverty in the sense that we think of it. Um, but rather, um, the, the way that he describes it being poor of spirit, it's the sense, it's an idiom, it's an idea of being out of breath, being exhausted, being uh, worn down. And he says, blessed are those who are enduring so much that they f- can't feel like they can take another step. Well, what are they enduring? What are they exhausted by? If we go to verse 10, the parallel line, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Christians, Christians can wear themselves out doing any number of things, but there is nothing that will wipe you out like being persecuted. There is nothing like having to stand true when the world is aligned against you. He says, look, you get to the end of this, you get worn out, you are going to get beat down. Right now we're on a hill, we're in Galilee, it's beautiful, it's it's a special time. This crowd is all gathered, everything is going right. It's not always going to be like this. You're not always going to be in a situation where everything is working. You're going to be in a situation where your life has literally hit that moment when your phone just turns off randomly in the middle of a message. Your world is going to be like that. Inexplicable pressure and pain. You're going to be worn out, not because of who you are, but because you are striving to live out the righteousness of the kingdom of God. But no matter how out of breath you are, no matter how heavy the persecution is, you still belong to the king. And then he says, blessed are those, in verse 4, who mourn. Well, what's paired with this? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Go down um, to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You say, how do those pair? Well, why are they mourning? See, mourning is different from grieving. We read that and we go, well, they mourn because it's maybe they lost a loved one. or, or That's grieving. In Scripture, the word that's translated here as mourn, um, it is sorrow over the condition of the world. It is a perception of the brokenness around us. Mourning not for our loss, but mourning for the brokenness of the world. Um, I, I went back over some of the things that, I, that I've written over the years, um, and um, one of the things that I wrote was a, a, a blog post uh, several years ago um, about, about how much I hate cancer. Now, I think we can all agree there's absolutely nobody in the world who has any other response to it except that. 
And, and as I go through the, the conversation, as I went through the blog, though, the blog is not about hating cancer because of what it does. It's because of what it is. It's a symptom of the brokenness of the world. It is when a healthy cell in the body, for no reason other than the broken nature of the world, starts to replicate and clone material that actually destroys the cells that are producing it. It's, it's, it is the brokenness of the world manifest in biology. It is entropy at action. It is disorder rising out of order. It is dark, and the blog post was dark, man. But it is something to mourn. We mourn the brokenness of our world. And if you think about it, the only reason that a true follower of Christ would seek to make peace in a broken world is not for our own ease and comfort. And isn't that the reason we usually try to make peace? All right, let's make peace so we can live, we can live together without killing each other. Apologize to your sister. Do it now so that I don't have to deal with you two anymore. Right? We tend to make peace because we want it. But the reality is if we look at the brokenness of our world, if we mourn and lament over the shattered fragments of God's creation that sin has caused, and I'm not talking about people's individual sins. I'm talking about the degradation of creation then we will seek to make peace to resolve what we can just to give a hint of the peace that we can have in God. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, how are we comforted? How are we comforted? Are we comforted because God comes along and puts his arm around us and says, wow, this is terrible. Is that what we seek from our God? Or, as we mourn the brokenness of the world, do we look to the scriptures and look to the words of Jesus and see the hope of righteousness and restoration and redemption? And we are comforted not because because we feel better, but we are comforted because the king... Although he is not yet fully ruling and reigning, the kingdom has not yet been fully realized. He is is nonetheless fully 100% the king. And we can be comforted in who he is. And therefore we can be called the sons of God. You know what the sons of God are in the Old Testament? They are the servants of the king. That's actually a title. In the house of David, the sons of David were his servants they were his ministers they were his cabinet his his high level guys were the sons of david that was it was broader than just his biological sons and so to be the sons of god is to be a part of the kingdom of god active working ambassadors apostles missionaries christians gospel preachers peacemakers whatever you want to call us just don't call them waymakers because i don't like that song Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'll play it for you later. Um, We get to be a part of the kingdom of God. But in order for us to really seek peace, right, we have to see the reality. We have to know what's really going on. Let's go to the next one. Blessed are the meek. Boy, does this word get beat up. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, right? Now, what's really, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out to you, that this actually corresponds to blessed are the merciful in verse 7. It's kind of an inversion. And again, things fit, and I'm not going to get in all the rhetoric, but blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We often talk about what meekness is. I still remember my father's definition of meekness because it was just the best thing, um, one of the best things he ever said. He said that meekness is power under control. And, and it is not the idea that we are weak. You know, when we talk to somebody meek, we're like, oh, he's just meek. He's a little guy. He's, oh, yeah, whatever goes on. That's not true meekness. Let me tell you what meekness is. Um, meekness is, is having enough of an understanding of the power of the kingdom that you aren't relying on your own ability and you're not abusing the power of the kingdom to get what you want. It is, it is kept under control. Um, we, we talk a lot about martial arts and kind of things. And some of the kids that I teach, um, I get asked all kinds of questions by, by my kids. Like, like, can you kill a man with a punch? And it's like, no. I mean, I, maybe, you know, it's like, it's like, you ever read Bruce Lee? Bruce Lee said, you know, my hands are registered weapons because if I punch you, I'll kill you. He actually did say that. Um, and there's a movie where one of the character goes, well, I mean, isn't that true of everybody? Like everybody's hands are weapons if you use them um, to do the wrong thing. Anyway, we talk about martial arts. One of the things you learn in martial arts is, uh, you know what? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, just because you have power or capacity or ability or whatever it is doesn't mean that you should use it all the time. I've been with martial artists who think that the best way that they can assert themselves in a workshop is to try to beat up everybody that comes in contact with them. Um, it's always fun when those people try to put a wrist lock on me because I don't know if you've ever noticed. Um, my wrists are fairly substantial. Um, they're, my arms are pretty big. And you can't wrist lock me. So I love when they try to wrist lock me and I smile at them. All right. Um, and I laugh and then I tap them on the shoulder and say, try something else. See, power under control. You have the capacity to do something, but you choose not to do it. Now, tie that in with mercy. Is it mercy for you to forgive somebody you have no power to punish? Who is the only person who can actually demonstrate mercy in a legal case? Who has the power to make the decision in a courtroom? The judge. The, yes. Judge Wapner. Although he was just paid to... That was a game show, but... Um, the judge has the decision. He, the, now, the jury can make a recommendation, right? They, can, they decide guilty or not guilty, right? They make that decision. But the judge can then decide on sentencing. And if the jury turns in a sentence that he actually feels is not enough or is too much, he can change it. The judge actually has the power of mercy. So in order to be able to be merciful... We must acknowledge that we have power. You see how it lines up with meekness? Because meekness is power under control. 
Now, it's not our power. It's God's power. You abuse it, you're going to be in trouble. But there is power in the gospel. There is power in the word. There is, um, and so mercy requires power. When I acknowledge who truly has the power, when I acknowledge who it is that is truly king, then I respect that power because it's not me. I respect mercy because it's not mine. We come to understand a little bit better what it means to be a part of the kingdom when we see just how powerful Jesus really is. Very quickly, that's last one, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Um, the coupling of hunger and thirst indicates a, um, a, a whole body desire for righteousness. Right? I mean... How many of you have ever been so thirsty? Now, I'm not talking about, oh, mom, I'm thirsty. Or I need to take a break from class, I'm thirsty. How many of you have ever been so thirsty that it actually took control of your entire body? You ever experienced that? I was on a hike one time where I did not drink anywhere near enough water for the heat and temperature that I was in. I didn't eat nearly enough food. In fact, I did an entire 20-mile hike on two Snickers bars. I got to the end of the hike, and my friend Greg said to me, you don't look so good, as I fell over trying to untie my shoelaces. Um, I literally got in my car. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. As I got in my car, my eyesight started to disappear. Right? It started to get blank. The parts of the world that I could see began to flash a bunch of different colors. My tongue started to swell up. My mouth got dry and tasted like nickels. Um, and no matter how much water I drank, I could not stop being thirsty. Now, what was actually going on, my body had been deprived of electrolytes and energy. My blood sugar was probably just about bottom, bottomed out. Thankfully, he bought me a hamburger and about three gallons of lemonade, um, and I was able to drive home. It was not a pleasant drive home. Um, he thought he was going to have to take me to the hospital. Until you have really been that thirsty, until you have actually been that deprived of nutrients, you don't know what this means to have a whole body hunger and thirst. And this pairs with his statement about being pure in heart. Because the heart was the seat of the desires. Um, in, in the ancient world, your emotions were actually seated in your kidneys, in your bowels. I know that sounds gross, but that's where it was. And your heart was the basis of your desires. All right? So your heart was what motivated your desires and your needs. And the idea of being pure in heart it does not mean, oh, he's pure in heart, like, da, you know, Arthur pulling the sword out or anything like that. It is that we are not carrying darkness or, or, or shadow in our motivation and our desires, but rather we desire what God desires, which is righteousness. And they pair together. In verse 4, it says, for they shall be filled or they shall be satisfied. And then in verse 8, for they shall see God. So what does it take to satisfy a member of the kingdom's hunger and thirst for righteousness? 
It is the presence of God. Not, not necessarily we see God, like, I mean, if you're hungry and thirsty enough, you may think you see God, but I mean, you will actually see because you pursue righteousness, because you pursue and desire it with your whole being, that God is revealed to you. Not physically standing in front of you or anything like that. And so in this, this relationship, in this kingdom, we have all of these ideas. And we go, okay, well, these, these are pretty good. I mean, look at the blessings that we're going to receive. The kingdom of heaven, and we'll be comforted and inherit the earth. And this is all great. But look at the summary statement that he makes in verse 11. He says, this is all going to be, it's all going to happen when? When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That is when your poverty of heart, that is when your mourning, your meekness, your hunger and thirst, your mercy, your purity of heart, your peace, being, being a peacemaker, it is only revealed in persecution. And when that persecution comes, when it weighs down on you, when it breaks against the shores of your life, unrelentingly wearing you down, he says, and he commands them, he says, so rejoice. Find joy. Be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus commands us to choose to find joy and gladness when the world comes down on us, breaks us, weighs us, tries to push us, bully us. Um, I had a conversation with somebody just the other day about um, a particular showrunners run on Doctor Who. All right, I know, I'm a, I'm a nerd. And I just said it was very disappointing. I, I wish that they had done more. And I had somebody come to me, of course it was on social media, come to me and say, basically, you're just one of those people that won't let anybody be happy. What? And basically would not let me go. She was on it. She was yelling at me that I was oppressing her. I was picking on her for her gender. I don't even know how that came up. Um, And basically, I was bullying people. And until I admitted I was wrong and she was right, there was going to be no resolution to this. And I said, do you understand the irony of this? That I said I didn't like this. I never said anything about anybody else, their opinions, their feelings. And you came at me saying I was demanding that I accept, everybody accept my position And told me that unless everybody accepts your position, they're wrong. Do you see the irony in this? She got so mad at me for daring to say that that she did not have a right to demand that everybody agree with her. Now, thankfully, social media has this great feature called block. Jesus loves you. Um... And you know what? Our world does that to us. Our world comes at the kingdom of God, which is still yet coming. We are, we are 
we are precursors. We are, um, we are the, the, the tremblings of the emergence of the kingdom in its entirety. They, they will come at us and they will tell us that what we believe about, uh, about the sanctity of life, about human sexuality, about what is sin, about, uh, about um, not just traditional values, but Bible values. They will come at us and they will tell us that unless we change, unless we conform, we are the ones who are causing the trouble. We are the ones who are persecuting. We are the ones who are oppressing. Although I got to be honest with you, I, I strive on a daily basis not to persecute or oppress anyone. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I kind of make that a goal. No oppression today. Um, we, but they will come at us because the kingdom in its pieces and it's, 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 it's here, but not yet. It discomfits a world that doesn't want the king. So Jesus says, find joy because otherwise this, the, your response to their oppression will actually take you away from me. Find joy. Don't go looking for persecution, but when it comes, find joy. Be glad. You're enduring something. We have a long history of the world not liking the king who is coming. And unfortunately, in a world where it is aligned against Christ and his kingship, you and I will get caught in the crossfire. So let me leave you with this and I'll be done with this. If you read this, you will, you will find that every single one of the Beatitudes is about me lying, laying down what I might want for the kingdom. Laying down my desire to execute power. Laying down my, de- my definition of righteousness. Laying down what I know would make me full and happy. Putting those things aside to serve the king. And Jesus will, time and time again, over the course of this sermon, he will challenge his listeners. You live in a world that needs you but doesn't want you. As long because you are mine. You will live in a world that will want you to be like them, but you can't be like them and be like me. Jesus says, You can't be a part of this kingdom and my kingdom because this kingdom wants to tear me down and attack me and break me. Wants to. wants to destroy righteousness. And he's going to, by the way, address the fact that Judaism of his day was, ad- was attacking righteousness. That um, it was actually turning peace into war. So here's my challenge. How do you find joy in this world? I can't answer that question for you. How do you find not just happiness, but to find gladness and joy even in persecution and oppression? How do you steel yourself to be what Jesus calls us to be, which is the kingdom 
in exile, not yet fully realized, servants of the king, what will you do to brace yourself and your community to endure the persecution that is coming? I think in my lifetime, to be perfectly honest, the protections, the somewhat artificial protections that are over our religion and our faith are going to disappear. It is going to be broken apart. It is going to be worn away and we are going to be exposed like a nerve. And if we are not committed to the king, we will fold. We will be broken. Now join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, you are our king. Humble us before you. We know only bits and pieces of your kingdom. Help us to live lives worthy of your righteousness. Jesus, when we face the the mild persecutions we face today, help us to bear up for greater persecutions may be coming. Help us to be your church no matter what the world outside of these walls tries to do to us. May our commitment always be to you, our King, no matter what we must endure. May you, your glory be our passion. Your righteousness be our hunger. Your fullness be our desire. Your kingdom be our home. We pray this, Jesus, our King. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go and be the church of Jesus Christ no matter what the world tells you.